you have your Bibles with you, open up to the Gospel of John. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, and we are working our way through this glorious couple of chapters here, chapters 6 and 7, that have just been hopefully filling our minds with rich theology and rich uh, observations of the person of Christ as He now is going to be showing up to the Feast of Booths to begin to minister His Word. And so this sermon this morning, the title there in your bulletin, you'll see a little uh, sermon note sheet if you'd like to take notes. It's called, this sermon title this morning is The Claims of Christ. The Claims of Christ, John chapter 7, verses 14 to 24. We're having a little challenge with our uh, PowerPoint, so I'll just kind of call out those blanks as we get there, and you'll be able to fill those in if you'd like. And uh, this morning, we'll look at, again, chapter 7, verses 14 through 24. Here's what the Apostle John writes. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but is but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered him, or the crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. Father, we bow our heads and our hearts before you this morning and ask that you would enlighten our spirit to be able to understand your word today. As we look at the teaching of Christ, I pray that you would open up our eyes so that we could see and that you would open up our ears so that we may hear what you want us to hear today and that you would apply your truth in our lives, that we may be changed as we seek to adore the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's in His name we pray, amen. Well, I have a question for you this morning, and that is, have you ever heard somebody make a claim that just seemed too good to be true? Maybe you just heard somebody claiming they're going to do something, and it just seemed like it's just too good to be true. A couple of years ago, I took a, a phone call from a sales company that wanted to sell me some solar panels. And actually, it wasn't for me to, to buy the panels, but it was for me to rather have them put the panels on my house, and they guaranteed me they would decrease my energy bill by 25%. And I said, well, that just sounds too good to be true. There's no money down required, but if you go with us, we'll save you 25% a month. And so I read all the fine print. I talked to three different reps, and I finally decided to pull the trigger and do it. And guess what? I've been saving 25% a month. So sometimes it works out, right? Sometimes people make a claim and it seems too good to be true. Sometimes, though, it doesn't always work out that way. There's a lot of over-claiming going on in our culture. It could be a biotech CEO that says the company's tests can determine various diseases from a single drop of blood. Or it could be a marketing executive insisting that he can double his sales from last quarter. Or it could be a football coach guaranteeing his team that they will win the championship no matter what. And so what matters is being able to differentiate between bold claims that may be true and those meant to create an aura of excitement, even seduction and enthusiasm about something that the audience just can't resist. Marketing and advertising claims bombard us constantly. And although we often uh, want to kind of think through them, we need to be discerning about the claims that are being made so that you and I can make wise decisions. And to avoid making poor choices of overclaiming, let me advise you to be skeptical if what you've been told sounds too good to be true, or if you feel that the person is trying to intimidate you into not asking any questions about their product, or if when you do ask a few questions, the person can't really address them or you don't understand the answers that they give you. There's just some just areas of caution to say beware that you could be taken by the claims of 
that are made by various companies, right? And in many ways, we should also be careful and discerning and prudent when considering the claims of Christ. I mean, let's be honest here. Jesus did make some bodacious claims that, uh, that, that are kind of go beyond what any sales rep has ever offered. Uh, Jesus had the courage and the audacity to make claims that had never been made before by any man or woman and have never been made since. Think about it. Jesus claimed to have come down from heaven. Jesus claimed to have been sent into the world by his Father, to be the Savior of the world, to be the judge of the peoples of the earth and their eternal destinies. Jesus claimed to be the only source of eternal life. Jesus claimed to be the only way to God. He claimed to have the right to be honored on an equal basis with God the Father. He claimed to be one with God. He claimed to have the power to raise people from the dead. He claimed to be the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. He claimed to be the supreme ruler who would one day return in glory. He claimed to be without sin. He claimed to have all authority on heaven and on earth. He claimed to have authority to forgive sins. He claimed to have authority to answer prayer. He claimed to have authority over the Sabbath. He claimed to encourage prayers to be made in his name. He claimed to be the bread of life. He claimed to be the light of the world, to be the door of the sheep, to be the good shepherd, to be the resurrection and the life. He claimed to be the way, the truth, and the life. He claimed to be the true vine, to be greater than the temple. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be King of kings and Lord of lords. He claimed to be the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Is that too much? that Jesus could claim to be all that? Should we be skeptical of him this morning saying that he's over-promising and yet under-delivering? Jesus' claims polarized all those who heard him. And when you heard Jesus speak, it was either like fresh water to your soul or it was clear as mud to your cold, dark heart. Some believed his claims were too far-fetched, but others wholeheartedly believed that Jesus' claims were indeed true. Already in this Gospel of John, we have heard from many of those who did believe in the claims of Christ. John the Baptist proclaimed that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Philip said of Jesus, we have found him of whom Moses in the law has also written with the prophets that Jesus of Nazareth is that the prophets wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Many in the town of Samaria believed in him, affirming the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. And we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. A Gentile royal official also believed in Jesus and his claims along with his whole household. When Peter was speaking for the twelve, he said to Jesus, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so my question to you this morning is, where are you with Jesus's claims? The claims of Christ polarize every person. You're either all for it or all against it. And so I'm asking you, what about you this morning? Do you believe in the claims of Christ? Do you believe in the person of Jesus that he was born to the Virgin Mary? Do you believe that Jesus Christ really lived? Do you believe in his teaching? Do you actually and honestly believe the claims of Christ? Believing what others may say about Jesus will not get you to heaven. Believing that Jesus existed won't do you any good. Believing that Jesus was a good person gets you nowhere. You are not allowed to only believe in part of what Jesus said. You must believe in Jesus and the claims that he made about himself or you will never know God. So this morning, I want to give you four truths from this passage that will help you determine whether you believe the claims of Christ or not. Four truths from this passage that will help you make that determination of whether or not you believe the claims of Christ. Now this morning, we'll only get to the first three, and we'll save the fourth for our next time together. Here's the first truth that I want you to look at from this passage that'll help you determine whether or not you believe Jesus' claims. Number one, the teaching of Christ was not like any other man. Completely different 
fully God, fully man. But as we'll see this morning, the teachings of Christ were not like any other man. Look at verses 14 through 16, about the middle of the feast. Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So the Jews, so excuse me, so Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. The teaching of Christ was not like any other man. Now, keep in mind, if you're just kind of joining us this morning, that we've been working through this gospel of John, and in the earlier part of this chapter, we've been discussing how Jesus was coming to the Feast of Booths to announce that He is the Christ, just by fulfilling certain pointers in the Feast of Booths that would point to Christ being the Messiah. And He didn't come, however, at the very beginning of the feast because He said that His time had not yet come. He knew the Jews were out to kill Him, and so He came a little bit later. He did not come at the coercion of His unbelieving brothers because Jesus knew that that wasn't the time that God wanted Him to come to the feast. Jesus knew that God does all things well, that God operates to a certain timetable, and so Jesus shows up during the middle of the feast, and I believe that part of that strategy, if I might offer, might just simply be that He's going to catch the Jews off guard, and then he would be able to focus on what he really came to do. He came to teach the scriptures and to bring the good news of the gospel to his people. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus didn't come to bring a big show. Jesus didn't come to try to be the most popular man on earth. Jesus didn't come at his first advent to dethrone Caesar and become a political ruler. No, Jesus came to save his people from their sins. And if you're taking notes this morning as we look at this unique teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, not like either any other man, let me just start off with this first blank that Jesus taught at the temple. Jesus taught at the temple about the middle of the feast. Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Now, the temple in Jerusalem was the center of all the action. This was the religious headquarters of the Jewish faith. This is where all the rabbis would teach. This is where people would convene. There were many courtyards and plazas that provided opportunities for teaching almost anywhere at any nook and cranny of the whole structure in the greater uh, court of Gentiles would have been opportunity for Jesus just to be there at the temple and to be teaching the people. I'm sure you might remember the time that Mary and Joseph came to Jerusalem with Jesus and accidentally left without him. You remember that? They headed back to Nazareth and, and uh, Jesus wasn't with them. So after looking for a couple of days, they come back to Jerusalem. And where did they find him? Luke 2, 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And so this was a common type thing where rabbis would teach there at the temple. And so here in verse 14, Jesus is doing what he does best. He's teaching the people. The word teach here in the original language simply means to tell people what to do. It means to instruct, whether formal or informal. Teaching is what Jesus did naturally as he came to earth and that we might learn from him. He's, He's the master teacher. And so Jesus came to do this teaching. And then we see in your next blank there that Jesus never studied in any formal school. So this is kind of what amazes them. The Jews, therefore, verse 15, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? You see, all of the well-known rabbis studied under other well-known rabbis. And how could Jesus be such a great Bible teacher if he never went to seminary? I mean, the apostle Paul had training under Gamaliel, and Gamaliel was recognized as a Pharisee doctor of Jewish law. He was held in high esteem by all the Jews. In Acts 22.3, we are told that Paul was educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law. And so if Jesus, certainly he needed to be tied to somebody to be a source of authority, a source of strength. Like, where do you get the things you're teaching from? Because we're not aware that you've ever studied at any Ivy League seminary in Jerusalem. And over time, the Jewish rabbis would really study the Bible initially, and then they would make and compile commentaries about the Old Testament scriptures, and eventually formulated the Talmud, which is a collection of writings on Jewish law. And traditional Judaism as a religion is based not only on the Hebrew Bible, but also, and that's the whole problem, it's based not only on the Bible, but also upon the Jewish 
rabbinic tradition, and the foundation of that tradition is the Talmud. There are actually two Talmuds, the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, and both are commentaries upon the Mishnah, which is a short legal work based upon the Bible that is the foundation of the Jewish tradition from a legal point of view. So here's what I'm saying. The Jewish scholars studied the Bible, but they also studied other Jewish scholars. And as they began to study other Jewish scholars, they began to divert further and further away from the original source, and they began to come up with a religion of their own. So much so that when Jesus came, they didn't even recognize him because they had been diverted from the true, pure prophecy of the Bible alone. All that to say that the Jews were accustomed to hearing rabbis teach by regularly referring to other sources than the Old Testament scriptures. And they were used to the rabbis referencing the other rabbis who had gone before them. And so they so prized the tradition of the Jewish faith that it was often forgotten what was actually from the Bible and that everything else they were studying was just the words of men. It was almost as if Scripture wasn't enough. They needed to quote from some scholar who was well-respected in order that their teaching might carry any significant weight. And the same is true for the Roman Catholic Church today. Roman Catholics do not hold to the Bible alone as being authoritative, but also to the teachings of popes and councils and creeds as being authoritative. And this is why it's so important that the Reformation took place, reminding us that it's about sola scriptura, the Scripture alone, the Bible alone, as the only authority by which any doctrine of the church must be built on the Scripture and not on the words of men, which is why here at Placerita Bible Church, our doctrinal statement is built on Scripture alone. It is not built on any particular person or historical theological work. It is not built on the commentary of man, but on the Word of God, And it can be so easy for us to reference this theologian or that theologian, and it can be so easy for us to look to this missionary or this pastor as an authority on any given subject. It's so easy for us to latch on to a certain book as the centerpiece of our thinking of some Christian practice. And while all of these resources are helpful, none of them are necessary. You understand Calvin's Institutes aren't necessary. The gospel according to Jesus, written by John MacArthur, is not necessary. You understand whatever favorite book you have, instruments in the Redeemer's hands, it's not necessary. They're all helpful, but they're not necessary. There's only one book that's necessary, and that is the Word of God. And this is what made Jesus starkly different than any other teacher, because they're all quoting other sources, other references, other people. Jesus just quotes the Bible. Now, I'm not saying if you're writing a paper in your theology class, that you shouldn't cite other sources outside the Bible, right? I'm just reminding us that it's all about the Bible, and everything else is extra, and it's not essential part of our faith. They are simply tools that can be helpful, but the Word of God is all that we need. Second Timothy 3.16, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Just a reminder, the Bible is claiming itself that all you need is the Word of God. How about 2 Peter 1.3? His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So God's divine power comes through Christ, and that's revealed to us. The knowledge of that is revealed to us through the Word of God. And so Jesus' teaching was different because it all came from the Bible. The Jews were astonished by this, and they they marveled at this. They couldn't understand how this could be. And in fact, after Jesus gave his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew's uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7, here's how the crowd responded at the end of that sermon, Matthew 7, 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see, when you're quoting from another person and another person and as another person, it's hard to really stand strong because you're referencing someone else's material. When Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, he's only referencing the Bible and his own inspired words. And so he spoke with such great authority that it really took everyone back. He's not just pontificating about finer points of doctrine and theology. He's getting very practical, and and he's getting very sharp with what he's saying and calling people about how to live in a radically righteous way for the glory of God. 
Uh, we see the astonishment of people in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Same thing happened there when he would teach there in Matthew 13, 54, coming to his hometown. He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? I mean, the people in Nazareth knew better than anybody that Jesus was just one of them. I mean, he had been raised there amongst their midst. They had not known him to receive any formal training. Typically, if somebody from our church went to medical school, we'd all kind of be aware, like, oh, that person's in medical school. They're becoming a doctor. And so, you know, they knew Jesus didn't go to some formal school. He just worked as a carpenter every day. He was part of that community. And all of a sudden, he starts to teach. They don't know where he got it from. The same thing happened in Capernaum, Jesus' headquarters of his Galilean ministry in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, and they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as one of the scribes. And so again, the idea, the scribes had really no authority. They had no ability to really meddle with the things of God through the word of God in people's lives because they're not just teaching the Bible. And you see, you see it later in this chapter when the authorities do try to arrest Jesus a little bit later here in chapter 7. Look down at verses 45 and 46. The officers then came to the chief priest and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. So they did actually make some attempt to arrest him here at the Feast of Booths, but the officers kind of got wigged out by Christ's teaching and how the crowd was responding. And they're like, nobody's ever talked like him. We can't just step in and arrest this guy. And so we see that Jesus' teaching was indeed very different than what they were used to. Jesus was also different than any authentic Old Testament prophet who was sent by God and proclaimed the Scriptures because the Old Testament prophets would always say, Thus saith the Lord. Jesus never said, Thus saith the Lord. Instead, Jesus would say, I say to you, So when the Old Testament prophets would teach, thus saith the Lord, thus saith the Lord. When Jesus would teach, he would say, I say to you. For example, look at some of these. It's right here in John, what we've been looking at already. Look at John chapter 5. John chapter 5 and verse 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus isn't quoting some scribe. He's not quoting some scholar. He's saying, no, this is what I say to you. Look at John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, what? I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Again, Jesus is standing on his own two feet, preaching with authority, because he's not saying, thus saith the Lord. He's saying, I say to you. How about John chapter 8? Look at John chapter 8 and verse 51. Again, Jesus says here in this chapter 8 of John verse 51, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Jesus is not standing on the authority of another. He is speaking as the Lord because he is fully God and fully man. And so we see him saying, I say to you, not only that, But in Matthew 5, where Jesus says repeatedly, he might say something like, you have heard it said, or it is written, and then he turns it on a hinge and says, but I say to you, and what he's doing is he's saying basically, look, you've heard all these scriptures, but you kind of interpret them in the wrong way, because you've interpreted them through unbelieving Jewish scholars, and you've kind of missed the point, so I'm going to reference some scriptures, and I'm going to give you the proper interpretation, and that's why he says, for example, in Matthew 5, 21, you have heard it said uh, you, have, you have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Or how about when he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Or how about when he says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so what we're just simply seeing here is there is a very clear difference in how Jesus taught and how anyone else has ever taught by Jesus teaching with authority. And so we're seeing him teaching in the temple. We're seeing Jesus teaching in a way that was different than any other teacher because he taught with his authority. But we also see while he has authority, look at the next blank there in your outline, Jesus' teaching was not his own. 
Jesus' teaching was not his own. This is kind of interesting. So Jesus said to them, my teaching is not mine, but, is, but his who sent me. So we might pause for a second and say, well, wait a second. I thought you were just saying, I say to you, I say to you. But even when he's saying that, what he's saying here in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. So what does he mean by that? The, the real question here is what is the source of Jesus' teaching and where does he get his authority from? And Jesus, in uh, Mark eleven twenty eight, they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority to do them? That's what the, the, the Pharisees and the Jews are really asking. Where, where does your teaching come from? And Jesus says, it doesn't even come from me. Ultimately, it comes from God. I mean, we already know that Jesus was not claiming the authority from the Talmud or from the Mishnah or from other rabbis or scholars. And so the question is, where is Jesus getting all of this from? And we know that Jesus isn't going to say that he gets his authority from man. So we may be thinking that he may say, well, it's my own authority. That's kind of how, as you read this the first time, you may think, well, he's just going to tell him I'm getting it from my own authority because I'm God. But that's not how he approaches this question. Instead, he says, it's not mine. It belongs to him who sent me. He, he, he says here, uh, you know, that it belongs to him who sent me. He, he doesn't say either that it's my teaching. He doesn't say that I came up with this. He says, no, it belongs to the Father. Now, this is a profound thought because what Jesus is doing is connecting himself with the Father. I think part of what Jesus is saying here is that his teaching did not originate with him while he was on earth. That is, it's not Jesus' own, you know, teaching on the spot that he's coming up with and giving. He's not giving his own personal opinion. Uh, Jesus never acted outside of the triune God. He was a part of the Trinity. He was connected closely with his Father and the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus' teaching came directly from God, the Father who sent him. And Jesus always uh, was aware in bringing our attention to the fact that he has been sent by the Father. That's what we've been reading throughout John. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus said, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Uh, John 6.38 says, where I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 7, 28, Jesus says, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come for my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. John chapter 7, verse 29, I know him for I come from him and he sent me. John 7, 33, Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. So what Jesus is doing is connecting himself with the father. And you know what? Basically, there's a lot to learn from what Jesus is saying here. Jesus always taught in a way that was congruent with and an extension of the Old Testament scriptures. And my friends, we ought to be doing the same. We ought to be teaching the scriptures, not our opinions. We ought to be teaching the scriptures, not what's popular. We ought to be standing on the scriptures and not on our soapboxes. And when it comes to issues like dating or morality or politics or finances or how to best love your neighbor, we should be teaching from the scriptures. Do what Jesus did. Point people to the Father. Point people to the Word of God. And the Word of God will point people back to Christ. And so we're seeing here that the teaching of Christ was not at all like any other man. So the claims that Jesus is making throughout this chapter 7 as we're seeing him as the Messiah first just realize that it's just different than any other man. Now, the second truth from this passage that will help you discern if Christ's claims are true or not is this. Number two, the knowledge God longs to give comes through obedience. The knowledge that God longs to give comes through obedience. Look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Now, Jesus is now saying, basically, here's a test. And if, if you want to know God's will, then look at your life and see if you're obeying God's will. And if you're obeying God's will, then you'll know and have discernment whether or not the teaching I'm speaking on is my own or from God. Uh, here, Jesus is saying, if you want to know for sure what the Father's will is, you need to obey 
his word. God's will is revealed in scripture. And if you're trying to figure out what it is that God wants you to be doing, you should be reading his word and following the scripture. J.C. Ryle said it this way, honest obedience to God's will is one way to obtain clear spiritual knowledge. Now, here's what we're saying here. Learning if Jesus is true or not is just not by considering it up here, but it's applying it in your life and how you obey what he says you ought to be doing. Let me try to unpack this point better with these subpoints. Jesus reveals himself. That's your next little blank there. Jesus reveals himself to those who, what? Keep his commandments. So we're saying if you want to have discernment, it doesn't just come from head knowledge, but it comes through living out your faith in obedience to God. You're familiar with John 14, 21. If you'll turn there with me just so you can see it fresh and anew, Jesus is revealing himself to who? To those who study hard. That's not what this verse says. John 14, 21 says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. That word manifest could be translated as reveal. So Jesus is saying, hey, I want to reveal myself to you, but it's not just going to come through your study. He's saying it's he who keeps my commandments and the person who obeys my word and keeps my commandment, that's the person that I'm going to manifest myself to and reveal myself to so that he will know that my teaching is from the father. To manifest means to make clear. It means to, to make visible. You know, it could be, have you ever wanted to be closer to Christ and to see him and understand him more? And have you ever wanted to know more of him in your life, but you just didn't know how? Or have you ever looked at other people's intimate walk with Christ and thought, man, I want that in my life, but I just don't understand why they seem to love Jesus so much. And part of it is that those who are keeping Christ's commandments are witnessing a fresh experience of his love. Because as you're obeying God's word, there's more communion. There's more uh, communication. There's the closeness that is so palpable that as you're obeying and walking in the spirit, it's like all of a sudden God unleashes the Bible to you in a way that you see things that you never saw before. That doesn't come from a skeptic who's just sitting back and trying to judge whether or not God's word is true. It comes from the disciple of Christ who follows Christ, and as they walk with Christ and obey with Christ and implement all that Christ is saying, all of a sudden they start seeing more, and they see more, and they see more, and they see more, and it's because of this idea of obedience. I mean, have you ever felt like when you read the Bible that you get absolutely nothing out of it? But when others read the Bible, they seem to have huge spiritual breakthroughs in their lives. They seem to be so stirred up by every chapter of the Bible that they read that they, they can't wait to share it with others. This is what I'm saying. Spiritual discernment and wisdom doesn't only come from studying God's Word, but from obeying God's Word. And until you put it into practice, it's just knowledge. But when you practice it, it becomes wisdom. When you study the Bible, it informs you. When you obey the Bible, it changes you. And I would rather have people at this church obey all they know about Scripture than to know all of Scripture but not obey it. I would rather have people at this church follow what they do understand to be true in Scripture than to try to comprehend the whole Bible but only seek to apply a portion of it. Bottom line, Jesus is saying, if you want real biblical discernment to know if what I am saying is true or not, then start obeying and you will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Obey Christ's command to repent. O obey Christ's command to trust. Obey Christ's command to believe in him. And as you do these things by God's strength and not on your own, you will begin to see Christ for who he really is. A.W. Pink says on this verse, quote, God will not grant light on his word unless you are truly anxious to walk according to that light. If the motive of the, of the investigator be pure, then he will obtain an assurance that the teaching of Scripture is of God that will be far more convincing and conclusive than a hundred 
logical arguments. So what is he saying? Not just studying it and coming up with all the logic, it's also putting it into practice. And as you put it into practice, then you will figure out and understand to a greater degree what it is that God wants you to know because he reveals his word not only to the mind that studies it, but to the heart that obeys it. And so just start walking by faith according to his word. Don't wait until you have it all figured out. Come to Christ today and seek him and follow him. And what we're saying is another evidence that knowledge comes through obedience could be found in Romans chapter 8. Turn with me there, and the next blank just says this, the Holy Spirit affirms us as we obey. I want you to see not only does Christ teach this, but there's a well-known text of Romans 8, 16 about the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we're children of God, but I want you to see what comes just before that. So if you're here this morning and you're not sure whether or not you're in the faith, listen closely to this passage. If you're not sure whether or not you're a child of God, listen to what the Apostle Paul writes to the Romans, Romans 8, starting in verse 12. He says this, so then brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he's reminding the Romans, he's like, hey, you're in debt, but no longer to your son, because if you've been saved by the grace of God, you're now in debt to Christ. And as you're in debt to Christ, I want you to put to death the deeds of the flesh, and I want you to live by the Spirit. That's about obedience. So he's basically saying, if you put to death the deeds of the flesh... Stop disobeying God's word and you live by the spirit, start obeying God's word, then you will be, verse 14, you will be being led by the spirit of God and you will be knowing that you are a son of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but as you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Now here's the verse. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. What happens is, For those of us who struggle with assurance of salvation, we go right to verse 16. And we say, well, I'm waiting for the Spirit to confirm with me and bear with my Spirit if I'm His or not. But how is it that you know and understand more is seeing it in context to say, well, if you're walking in the Spirit, putting off the deeds of the flesh, and you're walking in the Spirit and obeying Him, then the Spirit of God will affirm with your Spirit whether you're His or not. So what I'm saying is that there's this idea, I'm not saying that you're saved by obedience. And I'm not saying that it's only through obedience that you can know God. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is if you want to know and have discernment, you have to know and apply. And as the Holy Spirit is applying his word in your life, then you can have greater knowledge of who God is because you're putting into practice that which he is revealing to you. If you're born again, then be led by the Spirit. And if you're led by the Spirit, then you will realize that you are his. It is then and only then that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. It happens as you obey. It happens as you walk in the power of the Spirit. It happens as you live, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Again, the depth of the knowledge of salvation and sanctification that God desires to unleash in your life is proportionately given to you as you walk a life of obedience to Him. And so Jesus is teaching us this truth in John 7 and John 14, if you keep my commands, I'll manifest myself to you. In Romans 8, the Holy Spirit says, I'll bear witness with you that you're mine and you'll know my will that you are adopted into the family as, as you're putting off and putting on. But there's one other subpoint here to look at. God's word promises that if we seek him, we will find him. What I'm saying is this idea of revelation coming through obedience is really given throughout all the scriptures. You just maybe look at some of these very familiar cross-references. It's, it's Israel of the Old Testament was, was far from perfect, and the people wandered away from God many times, but God was always there to, 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 to lead them back. And in and, and Deuteronomy 4.29, it says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. Or a little bit later, King David counseled his son Solomon and said, and you, Solomon, in First Chronicles 28, 9, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all the hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Or how about uh, Jeremiah 29, 13? If you seek me and find me, 
uh, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Here's what I'm saying. All these passages of the Old Testament are saying, seek me, obey me, follow me, and as you do, I'm going to reveal myself to you. I'm going to reveal more and more and more to you as you seek and walk in the power of the experience, uh, in the power of the Spirit, and in an obedient way to the Lord. Uh, look at or just listen to James 4:8. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Again, we're getting the idea: drawing near to God also has to do with obedience. Now He He saves us all by grace. But as you're a saved individual, it's as you're obeying him that he's drawing you closer and closer and closer and closer. It's, a, it's the story of the prodigal son, that the son went astray and lived in a wild life. And then he decided to come back and he arose and came to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and he ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, that son was always the father's son, but it's as the son gets out of a life of disobedience and by grace comes back into a life of obedience that there's a closeness of revelation from the father to the son. And so what we're seeing is the challenge that that Jesus uh, issues to us has to do not only with knowledge, but also with faith and obedience. If you want biblical discernment and wisdom, you have to search for it, you have to ask for it, but you also have to obey the Lord. And as you obey the Lord and walk in obedience, He will affirm Himself to you through His Word and by His Holy Spirit. And so the obvious takeaway from this point is are you searching the Scripture? And are you obeying the scriptures in your life? And if you're searching and obeying the scripture, then you're going to see it. You're going to see all that he has for you as Jesus is going to reveal himself more and more to you. One, third, one more truth and we'll be done. Another truth that will just help you see whether or not you're discerning correctly the claims of Christ. Number three, the self-exaltation of any speaker opposes the humility of Christ. Look at verse 18. He says this, the, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So here's what's happening in this last verse that we'll look at this morning. Your next blank says, false teachers seek their own glory. False teachers seek their own glory. So Jesus' listeners are trying to decide whether or not his claims are true. And it should be apparent that the teaching of Christ is not like any other man. And so Jesus is now comparing himself with false teachers. And what he is saying is that if anyone is seeking his own glory, then that person is a false teacher. But if the teacher is seeking the glory of him who sent him, then that person is not a false teacher. And the Bible exposes some of the characteristics of false teachers. And we don't have time to look at all of them here, but Isaiah 56, 11 says basically false teachers are dogs who have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, and they all have turned to their own way, each to his own gain. Ezekiel 34 talks about how basically there's a condemnation of the shepherds of Israel because they were, uh, they were taking advantage of the sheep. He says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, all shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. So we say, hey, false teachers are identified by the fact that they're stealing glory from themselves. They're stealing material possessions from themselves. And they, they just fill you with smooth talk and deception. Romans sixteen eighteen. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites by smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the hearts of the naive. Philippians 3.19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame. Uh, 1 Timothy 6.5, they are imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In Titus 1.11, they must be silent since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. 2 Peter 2.3, their greed uh, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And so what we're saying is this, instead of seeking to honor God, false teachers seek to honor themselves. And Jesus uh, is basically not seeking to honor himself or bring glory to himself, 
but he's seeking to bring glory to the Father. This is proof that he's not a false teacher and that his words are from the Father because Jesus is just simply trying to glorify him. And all the false teachers are about making a name for themselves. They're all about pushing their agenda forward. They're all about sordid gain. They're all about exploiting others. But not Jesus. Your next blank says this. Jesus never sought his own glory. Jesus never sought his own glory. The opposite of a false teacher, Jesus said in John 5, 41, I do not receive glory from people. And again, in John 8, verse 50, he said, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. In other words, Jesus says, I'm not here for my own glory. I'm here for the Father's glory. I'm not here to exalt myself. I'm here to exalt the one who sent me. I'm not here to draw attention to myself. I am here to bring attention to God the Father. That's the exact opposite of what false teachers are doing. And while Jesus does not seek his own glory, the Father does. As Jesus glorifies the Father, the Father glorifies the Son. And the Father seeks to glorify Christ. That's why we read in Philippians 2, 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that is the name of Jesus. Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're saying Jesus never sought his own glory. He sought to glorify the Father. And yet as he did that, the Father in return sought to glorify the Son. And this is evidence, again, of the claims of Christ that he's not a false teacher because he's not tooting his own horn. He's pointing everything back to the Scripture. He's pointing everything back to his heavenly Father who sent him. Consider Matthew 20, 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What, what false teacher could say that? False teachers don't come to serve others. They come to be served. But we learn from this verse that Jesus never came to serve himself. He never came to serve him, but he came to serve his fellow man. He, he did not come to take from you. He came to give to you. He did not come to crush his people. He came to carry his people to God. He, he came to be our sacrifice. He came to be our savior. He came to bring us to God. And Jesus came in gentleness and he came in humility. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And so what we're seeing here is that the son of God was a humble man who came to, to bring glory to the Father. And we have, we have basically in Christ, we have the King of Kings coming down from his throne. We have the agent of creation subjecting himself to that which is created. We have the Lord of Lords becoming a servant. We have the mighty warrior, the Lord Jesus Christ, becoming a sacrificial lamb. I mean, Jesus was the opposite of seeking his own glory. He said in Luke 9, 58, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's in John 13 that he arose from supper and he put the towel around his waist and he went up to the disciples and he washed their feet. And so as we examine this life of Christ and as we examine the claims of Christ, we're saying that he is who he said he was. Don't you see the difference this morning in the claims of Christ and the claims of anyone else. Don't you see that in him there is no falsehood? Don't you see that in Christ there is true humility, true grace, and true character? Do you see that whenever you are exalting yourself in any way, that you're opposing the humility of Christ? And so what say you this morning? Do you believe the claims of Christ? Are you taking him at his word? Jesus's claims would be ridiculous, if they weren't true. It'll be like that salesman calling you on the phone. I can offer you this and I can offer you that and this and this and this and it's all free. You're like, what? I don't believe you. Click, right? But Jesus comes calling in the flesh as a man who preached the gospel that if we believe in him and him alone, that he is not over-promising and under-delivering. He promises to be who he is and his claims are true. But you have to decide for yourself this morning, what do you do with the claims of Christ? What do you do with what Jesus says? And so I'm inviting you this morning to believe in Christ and to see his claims as being authentic and to come to Christ and allow him to change your life forever. 
And so as we take off this morning here and think about what we've heard, I know we've had a lot to digest all these passages we've looked at, but let me just ask you these three questions that you can consider as you contemplate this message. Number one, how does the uniqueness of Christ's teaching encourage you today? We've seen a lot of the uniqueness of how Christ taught as you contemplate and think about that. How does that encourage your heart today that He truly is God in the flesh? Number two, are you obeying more so that you can see more of God. I'd say part of my goal in this sermon is that you would realize it's not just about studying, but it's about putting it into practice. And as you're obeying Christ and walking with Him, He's going to reveal more and more and more to you. Lastly, do you realize that whenever you're promoting yourself, that you're acting in a way similar to a false teacher? Jesus never came to promote Himself. He came to promote the glory of the Father. And at any point in time when you're promoting yourself, in your own agenda, because of your own pride, in that moment, you're in a sense acting like a false teacher. And so I hope that as you consider these three truths from this passage that help you see whether or not Christ's claims are true or not, and we'll look at one more next time we're in this, uh, in this text, I hope that it'll be encouragement to you that Christ's claims are true. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to dive deep this morning into your word and just to consider again all the claims that Christ makes throughout the New Testament. Thank you for the opportunity to consider what he's saying, and uh, we want to be uh, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we're grateful this morning that Christ came always to point back to the Father, and that he connected himself with the history of the Old Testament And yet at the same time, we do learn, God, from his authentic original teaching in the New Testament that that is all an extension of your care and your love for us. And so, God, as we study your word this week and as we seek to obey your word this week, I pray that you would continue to manifest yourself to us and to reveal more and more and more of your will through your word of how we can find great joy and satisfaction in you. And that we would just see the comparison of Christ, how he lived, that makes him starkly different than any false teacher, that he didn't come to, to promote his own agenda, but rather to hold high the glory of his Father. And I, I pray, God, as we think about all that we've looked at this morning, that you would encourage our hearts, challenge our hearts, fill us with a greater love for you. Allow us throughout this Christmas season to just, to just spend extra time in prayer, extra time in your word, And Lord, asking you to just show yourself to us. God, we want to be a people who aren't just stuck in exegetical uh, arguments. Uh, While that's important, and and, and we would never shy away from that, God, we also want just that practical application of your Spirit to work in our hearts, to, to radically transform us, to be servants of the Most High God, and that we would be uh, channels of grace this Christmas season to our neighbors and to our community, that we would open our arms and our, and our homes and our houses, that our conversations would all point to the whole reason that we're here, to exalt the living God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his name that we pray.